Thanks for checking out this weekly Sunday message from Carrollton UMC. We pray that God will use this to speak to you and help you grow in faith. We invite you to join us this Sunday at our 10.30 a.m. one-hour service, in person at our location in Uptown New Orleans, or live online on our YouTube channel or Facebook page. To learn more about Carrollton, please visit carrolltonumc.com. We hope you enjoy this message. Our scripture this morning comes from Ecclesiastes. I was uh, thinking back, we did an entire sermon series on Ecclesiastes, and this one, you know, I, I try not to do retreads of anything, and, um, uh, but when this popped up, I said, no, this is appropriate for this week, and I think you'll see why in a minute, uh, but this is Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. This is Solomon writing. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. The word of God for us, the people of God, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you in all ways, for you are our rock and our ever-present redeemer. Amen. It's the, this is the Mardi Gras sermon. You get one every year. Wait a minute. I've got to get my Solomon outfit out. <laughs> yes, indeed. This is, uh, this is not just the Solomon outfit, but uh, for my friends who I'll be with Mardi Gras, this will be part of the Mardi Gras outfit. And I bought it thinking it might be able to double as a saint's outfit next year. It was all black and gold. So here's, here's Solomon. Thank you. I'll be here all week. Um, we're on the doorstep of Mardi Gras. And the title of the sermon today was going to be a case study on let the good times roll. Because in the book of Ecclesiastes, that's what Solomon is trying to do. He asks this question. He says, how can I keep being happy? How can I keep the good times rolling? And so Solomon gives us in all of chapter two of Ecclesiastes a historical account of his particular decisions, his lifelong obsessions, his royal possessions, and his selfish rationalizations, which leads ultimately to the realization that all his hands has done and all the toil he has expended resulted in vanity and a striving after the wind. To quote the Jetsons' prophetic dog, Astro, Ruh-Roh, in this private autobiography that is the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon introduces us to his star-studded life, but he's been dropping hints the whole way that it's not as exciting a life as he wanted it to be. Nothing of value seems to last for him. As it turned out, other people were turning Solomon away from God. Great to have all that wisdom, right? But not if you don't employ it. We think by the end of his life that Solomon got things squared away with God and got back with him, but by then, most of his years were used up. So he asked this question in chapter 2, basically, how can I be happy and stay happy? So in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, Solomon tried wisdom of men, but Scripture tells us that didn't last long. In fact, it only added sorrow to his mind and his heart. And so in chapter 2, Solomon turns to entertainment, to stuff, 
And none of that, Solomon concludes, really helped find any lasting meaning or purpose in his life. It just made him feel empty. Solomon eventually figures out that he's looking in the wrong place to find lasting happiness. He made great works, but keep in mind that none of what Solomon was doing was for the benefit of anybody but himself. He wasn't sharing in his paradise. Why? Because people like that who are really wrapped up in themselves don't want to share the glory with anybody, not even God. So Solomon says, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Basically says, I kept my wits about me while I was being so great. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart, kept my heart from no pleasure. In other words, he says, I worked hard. I deserve all this stuff. I'm the alpha, and that's what the alpha does. But after all this, Solomon still asks the question, why am I still feeling empty? He says that I considered all that my hands had done, and behold, it was vanity and striving after the wind and nothing to be gained under the sun. Basically saying, I'm at the end of my life, and I'm facing up to the facts. I'm looking myself in the eye, trying to figure out what went wrong. Choices all amounted to vanity, striving after the wind, nothing gained under the sun. It reminds me of the Twilight Zone episode. There was a, a guy who died. I, I'm going to say a rich guy. That's kind of how he was portrayed. And he ends up in a place that looks awesome, right? And it's got casinos, and it's got women. And everywhere this guy tries his luck, he wins. Eventually, though, it became frustrating to him because there was absolutely no chance he was ever going to lose. And so he tells the angel there, he says, I don't want to be here. I want to go to the other place. And the angel says, this is the other place. So why is all this relevant to us? How can we relate to this super rich guy, Solomon? Because in our own lives, at some level, we are often playing the role of the entitled person. Now, I think I've told you this before. That this is something I try to do. If someone tells me, you deserve this or you deserve that for something that I did, I respond, I deserve whatever God gives me. Nothing more, but again, nothing less. On the other hand, when you start to believe what other people say, that you deserve this or you deserve that as a reward, you become entitled. It's a word that we use pejoratively to describe someone who believes themselves to be inherently deserving of privileges or special treatment. Even for the mighty Solomon, his supposed entitlement and privilege didn't work for him. Enjoyment never lasted long. One pastor put it this way. He said, Solomon is the proverbial individual who spent his life climbing the ladder only to get to the top and realized he had put the ladder on the wrong wall. The former prime minister of Great Britain, Benjamin Disraeli, wrote late in his life. I'll do it in my best British accent I can. Youth is a blunder. Manhood or middle age, a struggle. Old age, a regret. It just doesn't have to be that way. So today's message is a corollary to last week's sermon. That we talked about people pushing God out of their life, describing that as actually mocking God, saying, I know better than you, God. I'm going to push you out. We need to take God with us for everything we do. I want you to think about Jesus in this context. When Paul wrote to the Philippians about Jesus and all his glory did not hang on to his equality with the Father with some sort of sense of entitlement. 
In fact, Jesus was described as being exactly the opposite. Paul says, Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And so here comes Mardi Gras. Now, I'm a huge fan of Mardi Gras, but didn't we all kind of grow up with the mindset that Mardi Gras was somehow disconnected from the religious season that follows? In other words, during Mardi Gras, for lack of a better term, we were going to get it out of our system before the Holy Weeks. A perfect example of potentially chasing the wind and nothing gained under the sun. Here again, it doesn't have to be that way. Now, right at about this point, you're thinking to yourself, I'm thinking about that wedding at Cana. I think God likes a good party. I'm thinking the same thing. But here's the key. At the wedding at Cana, God was there. One author put it this way about Jesus saving the party. He says, this miracle bespeaks both quality and quantity. What Jesus created was beyond what the reception guests needed. There was an inverse ratio between the rather trivial problem of running out of a beverage at a wedding and the bizarre abundance of a solution. Jesus reversed the pattern of serving the cheap stuff last by saving the best for last. That God, the God that Jesus revealed by this miracle is a God of lavish liberality, generosity, and extravagance. He calls us from emptiness to excess, from the least to the best, celebrating God's extravagant excess. Which means that this Mardi Gras, if you are in it from the, for the party, but don't want to be all vanity and chasing at the wind and nothing gained, you need to take God with you. Don't push God out. Instead, ask God, how can I use this celebration to improve my relationship with you and reflect the spirit of Jesus to other people that I encounter during the celebration? God wants to be invited, and he goes where he is welcomed. Do that, and the lavishness and the generosity and the extravagance of God goes with you. And then Mardi Gras makes more sense and is not vanity or chasing after the wind. So as it turns out, you can take it with you. Or maybe better put, you can take God with you, not just to your house, not just to church, but out in the world where people can see your faith in God to your jobs, your schools, to the streets for Mardi Gras. To put it in the non-English vernacular, let's combine Laissez-le-bon-ton-roulé with via con Dios. Let us pray. God, we are so grateful for the celebration you give us in this city that allows us recreation, which translates also as recreation, helping us to, to build ourselves back, not to tear ourselves down before Lent, Lord, but to build ourselves back up so that we're ready for Lent, that we're ready for Easter. Lord, help us to use this celebration for that purpose and to bring others along with us and to bring you along with us and bring all of those folks together. Words in Jesus' name, we pray all these things. Amen.